Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. Through this series, we bring you trailblazing by South Asians and for South Asians. We're the torchbearers, sharing the stories of the leaders and innovators lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Today, I'm welcoming Adi Raval to the podcast. Adi is head of communications at Shield AI, a venture-backed AI-based defense tech company. Prior to joining Shield AI, Adi was head of communications for TaskRabbit. He previously led global media relations at the Bechtel Corporation, one of the largest engineering and construction firms in the world. Prior to that, he served as a senior crisis communications advisor for Lime Bike. Before transitioning to the private sector, Adi actually served as the communications director for President Obama's Power Africa Initiative, a unique public-private partnership designed to deliver clean energy to countries throughout Africa. Adi actually began his career as a diplomat for the State Department based in Afghanistan. But his story doesn't quite start there. Prior to his work in public service, Adi spent 12 years as a journalist with the BBC and ABC News, including as the bureau chief for BBC's Iraq base, and he also led coverage of the White House. A trailblazer in communications across tech, media, and government, I'm so thrilled to have him on the podcast today. So. Normally, I like to start at the beginning of a person's career, but clearly you have had such an expansive one that I actually want to start with what you're doing right now. You've held this head of communications, head of media relations type of role at a variety of companies. What exactly does that entail? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's really a pleasure and an honor. So thank you. So as a head of communications, I lead a team of colleagues where focused on advancing the mission of the company. For Shield AI, our mission is to use the power and capabilities of AI in order to protect the lives of military personnel and civilians in conflict zones. And I'm very interested in AI and, and how it relates to the rest of society. And that's the most exciting part of my job, is being able to communicate with a variety of parties, primarily external, whether they be members of the U.S. government, Department of Defense, VC firms, people obviously in uh, the world of media, foreign diplomats, about exactly what we're doing and what we're not doing. There is obviously, as you know, a great deal of misconception about AI. And so being part of a nascent industry, and being able to talk at length and clarifying certain issues and ensuring that people understand that we're using this technology as a force for good is something that I'm really focused on. That makes a ton of sense. And I appreciate what you said about reshaping misconceptions around AI and demonstrating that you're using technology for good because As we well know, defense tech is a space that often gets a pretty bad rep. And you don't really have to look any further than a company like Palantir, who's been mired in controversy over intelligence gathering activities and partnerships with U.S. government agencies and concerns around data privacy violations. And it's not just them, it's many other companies operating in this sector 
especially given that it's a space that the United States government tends to pour a lot of money into. Given that you're a person that manages and leads communications for a company in this space, how do you think about all of that? Sure. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be posted in conflict zones as a journalist for the BBC in Iraq and Lebanon, as well as a diplomat for the U.S. government based in southern Afghanistan. And so I have a sense of how important this kind of technology can be in order to, as I mentioned before, protecting people's lives, as well as advancing our collective national security interests. And so I think that perspective that I have of actually being on the ground makes a difference in terms of how I view our work and our work with the U.S. government. It's important to note that before Silicon Valley became known for what it is now, it was the U.S. government that was really the forerunner for developing some of our most critical pieces of technology. GPS, for example, the internet, they all came out of the U.S. government in the 1950s and 1960s. And obviously, all those are now being treated as a sense of normal by everyone. So it's important to understand that technology and its ability to really be fulfilled to its greatest potential has a role in the Department of Defense and other related agencies. Absolutely. And you touched on the fact that your work in communications has been informed by the fact that you spent time as a journalist and as a diplomat abroad. Can you tell me a little bit about what led to that transition from the public sphere to the private sphere? That's a great question. So it started off for me in high school. I was living in the East Bay in the Bay Area. I was born in San Francisco. And in high school, I realized how lucky I was, just how fortunate I was to have been born in the U.S. and to be more specific in Northern California. Just by that of where I was born, I had so many opportunities given to me that other people in other parts of the world clearly did not have. So it was really important for me to really look at a career that could provide a strong societal benefit. I became interested in journalism in high school because I was naturally shy, but I did love to write. And so I joined the high school student newspaper. That was my way to really sort of get over my shyness, if you will. Wow. And and that led to college, going to school at Middlebury in Vermont, a small liberal arts college where I continued that sort of passion for journalism. And it was during this time that I really sort of solidified my interest in journalism as a way to give back. And reporting the facts as I saw them on the ground was a way for me to really pursue that goal of mine that I had, a mission, if you will. So after college, I uh, joined ABC News, working on uh, the overnight shift, making less than $20,000 a year. (laughs) And in New York City, was able to cover the presidential elections of 2000. And then I moved down to D.C. in 2001. And then when the 9-11 attacks happened, I was sent to the Pentagon to help report on the attack that took place there. And at that moment, I really felt quite powerless. I really started to question my, my mission, if you will. I began to think that just being a journalist wasn't enough in terms of providing that strong societal benefit. 
Flash forward a few years, I got to travel the entire world for ABC News, based in Baghdad and for the war and based in Egypt as well. And this sense of not doing enough, this lack of fulfillment really began to gnaw me. And then in 2005, I joined the BBC because I was looking for more leadership experience. At the time, a lot of people thought that I was making the wrong decision because I I took a big pay cut to join a public broadcaster like the BBC. But what I began to sort of realize about American journalism at that point was how much of it sort of dovetailed towards following entertainment news, if you will. And I really wanted to get back to really covering real news. And so that's why I joined the BBC, based out of the Washington Bureau. And I was a bureau chief for a period of time in Lebanon for the war in 06, and went back to Iraq as the bureau chief for part of 2007, which was a very violent time in Iraq's uh, recent history. And so seeing attacks up close and personal, having breakfast with people who were dead by lunchtime really impacted me in the ways that I discussed before. And I wanted to do something about it. And so in 2010, it took me a few years, but I finally decided to make that desire something into reality. So I became a diplomat for the U.S. government, and I went to southern Afghanistan for the State Department. And there was a natural progression with being a journalist to what I was doing for the State Department, which was to be a spokesperson and a public affairs official. Okay. And so I lived at a small outpost in the middle of Kandahar City, second largest city in uh, all of Afghanistan, located in a very strategic area of the country, right near the border of Pakistan. And Kandahar province was where the 9-11 attacks were planned. And so I lived in a small Chinese cargo container wow. with my colleagues from the State Department, from USAID, as well as the U.S. military. And uh, I was there for about 14 months and holding meetings with tribal elders, with journalists, with people from the governor's office, and learning a lot about life and learning a lot about crisis communications and really making a difference. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. I'm surprised that you say you felt that you weren't doing enough for the world while being in a conflict zone. Why do you think that is? Because as a journalist being in a conflict zone, I, I was reporting on what I was seeing. But by definition of being a journalist, you're supposed to remain impartial and you can't necessarily get involved in terms of getting your hands dirty. It's different when you're a U.S. diplomat, right? Yeah, You have the same sorts of skills, right? Soft skills, the diplomatic skills, the focus on communications and outreach, the same ones you have as a journalist, but you can cross that threshold. In fact, that is your job, is to represent your country. And so my colleagues and I got to work on things that I think made a difference, you know, using the capabilities of and opportunities that the U.S. government provides to help empower girls and women for new opportunities and learning about Afghan culture and learning about different types of strategies and capabilities and really sort of being that kind of intermediary, if you will. Yeah, definitely. No, it's super interesting that you say that because more so in recent years, you've seen that transition that journalists make into public affairs roles or the private sector. 
And it makes sense that a lot of it is being able to have more of a tangible impact than sitting in more of a spectative role, even if you are serving civil society by covering what's going on in the world. I'm curious, in terms of being a diplomat working on behalf of the U.S. government, obviously you're South Asian, you showing up on behalf of the U.S. government, did that ever confuse people? Did you ever get questions? That's a great question. So people could tell that I was Indian. And I obviously was also very close to the Pakistan border. So there was a certain kind of sense that the Afghans had that they could talk to me and express their disdain for parts of the Pakistani establishment. Wow. And they thought because I was Indian that I would sort of be receptive to that. But there was a lot of bonding. There's a lot of shared spirit between India and Afghanistan. India does a lot of great work in Afghanistan. It opens up its borders for Afghan students to study at its universities, offering a lot of medical care for Afghans that other countries don't. And I remember this one time I was inside the governor's palace, his compound in Kandahar City, and there was a huge attack. And so we were surrounded and we couldn't leave the grounds of the compound. And so we were stuck there. And so the U.S. military advised us to just wait it out until the protesters and others stopped doing what they were doing. And so wow. we were there for two days, myself and uh, Afghan colleagues from the government. And at that time, the World Cup of Cricket was on TV. And this was the year that India won the whole thing. And wow. I, I don't remember whether it was in the semifinals. I think in the semifinals, India beat Pakistan or they beat Sri Lanka. I don't know which one, but that was when I really bonded with my Afghan counterparts and I felt Indian in ways that perhaps I hadn't before. Wow, that's interesting. I want to spend a second on that. You said feeling Indian in ways you hadn't before. Are there ways your identity has come into play over the course of your career as a journalist or diplomat or even now? Sure. I think there was a greater sense of really looking at my roots and of being an Indian after spending time in India for the U.S. government as a journalist and in the region, but also when my daughter was born, right? My daughter, Anika, is an Indian American, just like I am, right? And it's important for me and for my wife, Pooja, to make sure that she understands where she comes from. And so slowly but surely, she is learning some of the different Pratnaj and Shlokas and <laughs> becoming an ardent follower of different Bollywood movies, even at the tender we age We love of four to see now. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, awesome. um, that's very important. So obviously, when you have someone who is part of your life in the way that my daughter is, it's important that she understand where she's from. Well, I think that's amazing. And I love to hear that because it honestly speaks to the point of this podcast, our purpose and our mission in terms of finding ways to inspire the next generation and encouraging them to engage with their culture by engaging with people that look like them that have held these amazing positions and are doing amazing things throughout life and their careers. So I absolutely love hearing that. You touched on how earlier your work as a journalist has served you in the private sector. Can you speak to how exactly that's worked in terms of crisis communications or media relations? 
Sure, that's a great question. So as a journalist, you know, working in a in a newsroom, I'm used to covering or I was used to covering breaking news. And so, you know, I just have the natural ability to think quickly and really suss out what the major issues at play are and report the facts. And those types of issues are very similar to life as a senior spokesperson, as I am now, sticking to the facts and really being articulate and being able to conceptualize and articulate the various examples or experiences that are taking place to different audiences and do so in an expeditious manner. Yeah. And you've spent time doing that across a variety of different types of organizations, TaskRabbit, the Bechtel Corporation, Shield AI, Limebike. Can you speak a little bit to those individual experiences, what landed you there and how the role differed from each or stayed the same? Right. So working in tech is, as a senior spokesperson, is different than working for a large private sector company based in Washington, where I was before we moved out here about three and a half years ago. Working for a large private sector company on the East Coast, a large corporation, is in some ways very bureaucratic. And it's really hard to sort of drive the narrative forward just because of all the levels of bureaucracy you have to deal with. It, In some ways, it's like a super tanker on the ocean, whereas working for a small tech startup that is growing by a factor of 10 every month, it seems, right? You're really part of a speedboat and you have a more direct relationship with the C-suite. And that makes a difference in terms of the kind of impact you can have. Now, of course, you don't have the kind of resources that you have working for a large corporation, right? But I feel closer to the road, if you will, in terms of the impact and the decision-making. And of course, the ability to really present and articulate what the company is about to a variety of external audiences, that kind of approval process takes a lot less time at a smaller company, for the most part, that is. Yeah, that's super interesting. Can you point to any specific crises that you've had to step in to handle or just situations in terms of where you've had to design a narrative at one of these companies? I'd just be curious to hear what that process looks like. Right. So when I was at TaskRabbit as the head of communications, I worked for an incredible CEO, Stacey Brown Philpott, who was one of the true icons of Silicon Valley. And a few months into my job as the head of communications, Stacey pulled me into a room and uh, closed the door and said, so we've uh, decided to be acquired by IKEA. And so IKEA decided to acquire TaskRabbit. And the planning process, as you know, Simi, from your background, takes several weeks, if not longer, for that type of transaction to close. But at the same time, the news of it has to be kept very close hold. So I was working with my colleagues, uh, with my counterparts from IKEA, in order to help shape the internal narrative and the external narrative when the announcement was made. So that was certainly exciting. Uh, There was a team of one on our side as the head of communications, and IKEA had maybe 30 or 40 people on their side. So it it was tough keeping track of who was saying what exactly. That's super interesting because I have been on both sides as the intermediary and acquirer. I spent some time in banking as an intern and then in private equity full time. And particularly, I remember when I was in banking, 
you had to be so tight-lipped about who's in the process, especially because you don't know if it's going to pan out. And if it does pan out, what exactly is going to happen? So super interesting to hear about that from an insider who was dealing with the communications aspect of that. Right. I couldn't tell my wife. Um, (laughs) I didn't share it with my in-laws who I was staying with at the time. And I would just say, I need to close the door and go upstairs and just deal with this right now. And then it was only after the news came out that I was able to tell them. And then they said, aha, now we understand what was going on. Wow. Super interesting. So obviously, again, you spend time at TaskRabbit, then you also did something in more of a mobility startup with Bike. now Shield AI Defense Tech, Bechtel was engineering and construction. Can you just speak to what eventually led all roads back to defense tech versus these other industries that you spent time in? Well, as they say, life happens. <laughs> in the case of Ming, I was at Bechtel in Washington, D.C., and about four years ago now, my wife, Fuja, received the... Uh, job offer of her dreams to work at the Hewlett Foundation in Menlo Park. Wow. And she received a job offer while she was nine months pregnant. Oh, wow. And so she said to me, guess what? It's my turn. And we're (laughs) moving back. I had met her in DC, even though she was also born and raised in the Bay Area. So I said, yes, ma'am. That's the only (laughs) thing we can really say, right? I think three days later, she gave birth to Annika. Wow. Uh, So it was about four years ago, right about now, actually. And so we packed up the house. We um, moved out to the Bay Area, became a father, and I was looking for a job. (laughs) And all at the same time. And obviously, we're blessed to have family who live in the area so I could stay at their place. But I lucked out and I ended up at a great place uh, at TaskRabbit because the definition of a good job for me is, can I see the societal benefit? And can I see how the technology that they're employing is helping raise all boats, if you will, not just a select few? It's really important for me to see technology as a way to provide a strong societal benefit. And at TaskRabbit, Through the platform, people who are unemployed or underemployed or just looking to make extra income were able to do so because of the platform and do so that in a schedule that fit them. And that was really important for me. I could never work for a company where I couldn't see that line, if you will. Yep. It's still, and I think it will always be there for me to always work for a company where I can see some sort of a larger cause behind it. Absolutely. I think that's something that our generation and just generally the world is starting to grapple with as more and more issues come to light and finding this sort of meaning in your work, especially when you're sitting at home and you lack some of the other stimuli that a workplace typically offers. And it's really about the core of the job. I'm curious, obviously, Shield AI just raised a Series C I'm curious to hear a little bit about what exactly you're up to and what it was like to go through a raise, especially as being the head of communications and what that entailed. Well, it's certainly exciting times for Shield AI. You know, we, uh, through this Series C funding, we're able to further advance our mission and create, develop, and launch more products and capabilities dealing with AI and the national security sector. And I think that there's a growing acceptance of 
gov tech firms, if you will, mm-hmm. that are more closely aligned with the government in one way or another than I think occurred just a few years ago. And so I see that Series C in that respect. And it's about really harnessing and further advancing the capabilities of AI in order to really serve a worthy cause. So that's why I'm really honored to be there, especially now during this really exciting time for the company. Yeah. Why do you think that acceptance has grown, particularly over the last couple of years? Is it the macro environment around security threats or just a better understanding of the tech? I think it's just a greater understanding of what these companies are doing. I can't speak for all of them, obviously. I can only speak for mine, right? But, you know, we're not about killer robots, if you will. Yeah. And I think there's a greater understanding of, you know, people are more plugged in now and they're reading a lot more and they're becoming more informed. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think you're also seeing a lot more veterans join the tech sector after transitioning from the military. And I think that kind of perspective helps a great deal as well. That's super interesting. My senior year of college spent some time covering veterans turned students at Harvard, and it was truly one of the most enlightening experiences I've ever had. I I wrote a piece on them, but I feel like their participation in communities like this is so essential in terms of how they improve infrastructure and existing processes, especially ones that weren't always built with them in mind. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we're so fortunate at, at SHIELD to have so many veterans as employees and leaders, because they bring that different perspective to technology. They can see how a piece of technology associated with our platform, what kind of impact that can have on the ground. Yeah. I want to pivot back to some of the work that you did in the world of public service and the government. But one other thing I wanted to ask you about this world of communications What are some of the biggest PR pitfalls that you see companies engaging in, in the tech world? That's a great question. So I should start off by saying, I will always be kind of a journalist at heart. I'll always have that natural kind of inquisitive storytelling kind of aspect to my mindset. And more importantly, I think I hope I will always have those values associated with journalism of telling the truth and focusing on the facts and being honest and straightforward and transparent. Sometimes those qualities are lost in the world of tech. So having those qualities is something that I would implore everyone involved, not only in the world of communications at tech companies and elsewhere, but more broadly speaking, to really have and hold close to their heart. You know, with working with journalists is not always easy and it shouldn't be easy. I respect journalists who ask tough questions. Yeah. And I respect them for asking really pointed and direct questions because their readers and audiences around the world need to know about the kind of work that a lot of the companies involved in this sort of work are doing. And so I respect that. And I try to, of course, anticipate what those questions might be based upon my previous work as a journalist and try to think like a journalist, anticipate what kinds of of stories are coming down the road, if you will. And I also approach 
journalists, I think, differently than other communications officials do, because I never will pitch a story or a theme to a reporter that I myself wouldn't be interested in covering if I were still a reporter. So it has to pass that internal smell test, if you will. Yeah, I'm not the kind of person who says, oh, please cover this press release announcement when I know that there's you know nothing in there. That's not the way that we operate at SHIELD anyways. We only sort of focus on things that sort of are real and that Have are not substance. just- You're right. And that are not just sitting on a shelf, which as you know, from your experience- being involved in this sector, when it comes to AI, there's a lot of talk associated with AI <laughs> and this product and this capability, but it's rare for those announcements, if you will, to be matched up with actual facts on the ground, if you will. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And it's super interesting to see how your hat as a journalist has informed your work in this so much. And speaking to that time as a journalist, obviously you spent some time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Do you have any poignant memories that really stick with you to this day? There are several. One that sticks out right now is it was 2006 and I was in Beirut for the war between Israel and Hezbollah. And I was with the BBC and uh, we were on the rooftop of our hotel having a nightcap. And uh, in the southern suburbs of Beirut, that's where Hezbollah had its stronghold. And that area was being bombed, attacked by the Israelis. And so we were kind of absorbing that. And at the same time, if you, when we turned our heads and looked at the other rooftops in our area, we saw people going about their business as if what was going on just two or three miles down the road had no real effect. The point is, is that in a country like Lebanon, the people there have known nothing but war in some form or another for the past 30, 35 years or so, right? So having a part of the city being attacked, being bombed, there was a sense of normalcy about that. So I found that to be very, very interesting. Wow. And in some ways, if you look at our country, the U.S., We've known nothing but war for the past 20 plus years now, right? But unlike in Lebanon, the effects of the war and the ongoing conflicts that are still taking place this day are not felt by all aspects of society. Only a small percentage of people, of Americans, are actually feeling the impact or have felt the impact of war. And so that's always on my mind as well, Yeah, thinking about that and how, again, just how fortunate I am to be able to give back. It's really, you know, a blessing that I was raised by my parents who put values first in that regard. Yeah, that's super interesting. I spent some time in Israel and Palestine and I very similar sentiments in engaging with people that had grown up there and just their perspective on life and the world. And it makes you realize how insulated you can be growing up in the United States. I was just thinking about that the other day because there is this unfortunate belief by many people, including people from our generation, that they can understand what's going on in the rest of the world through social media. And simply seeing a short post about something in a faraway country on Facebook 
first of all, who knows if it's accurate or not, right? Yeah. Is really sort of part of the problem. And that I see in sort of the collective sort of understanding that is not fulfilled to its capabilities by many people in our generation. Absolutely. I have to tell you, like I just said, I went to Israel and Palestine and I don't know what sort of naivete exactly that I went in with, but I remember even when I came back, so many people would ask me, oh, you weren't scared? And was it scary? Were there bombs or planes or other things flying overhead? And I had to say, people are living their lives. And, you know, of course, it's a conflict-ridden zone. Don't get me wrong. But there's so much more to the story than we are presented with. And we are, particularly on social media, given an image of things that tends to be incredibly inaccurate or presents extremes or gives us a very lopsided view of what these places look like, who these people are, and what exactly is going on. And as we head into the next decade, I truly believe this is going to be one of the challenges of globalization via social media. Right. Obviously, for you, after spending some time as a journalist, you transitioned to working with the State Department and also headed up comms for President Obama's Power Africa initiative. How did your work abroad lend itself to you landing that particular role? That's a great question. So when I was in Afghanistan, I just remember looking around and not seeing any shops open and not seeing business taking place. And one of the major reasons why was the paucity of electricity. You can't run a business for the most part, if you don't have adequate access to electricity. And that really kind of churned around in my brain. And so when I came back to DC, I purposely took a lower level job at USAID so I could get my master's degree from Johns Hopkins Sice in international public policy with a focus on energy and the environment at the same time. And so after I was done with the degree, as luck would have it, President Obama, 2013, had announced his Power Africa initiative, which was 18 U.S. government agencies working as one with 100 private sector partners to increase the amount of cleaner energy in sub-Saharan Africa. And so that seemed like a perfect fit for me to join, given my background as a spokesperson and my interest in sustainability and the environment. And so I was fortunate enough to become the first communications director for the initiative. Wow. And it was my opportunity to travel to Africa for the first time and spend a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa, in different parts of the continent, from Kenya to South Africa to Rwanda and elsewhere, and really just learning about hardships and how about being surrounded by so many smart people and so many courageous people who did not have the opportunities that we had because they didn't have any power. They couldn't take classes. They couldn't, you know, women who wanted to become small business owners couldn't because they had no access to mobile banking, right? Because they're, they couldn't keep their cell phones on. And even if they could, there was no cell phone antennas in the area to keep wow. on. And so a lot of the issues associated with conflict, and I saw this in Afghanistan and elsewhere 
from the 30,000 foot level, they may be based upon, they may seem like they're based upon one warring side versus another, right? But if you dig a little deeper, you realize that a lot of the genesis of a lot of the armed conflict and instability and lack of development have to do with more bread and butter issues and how they're sort of dealt with in one way or another. And so that's what I learned from being in Afghanistan and also, you know, being on the ground in Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, I started this conversation by talking about how expansive your career is. And it's amazing to hear how much that translates to how you've literally traversed so many different parts of the world and done so many different things. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is there's often some taboo around U.S. aid and the paternalism that tends to emerge from U.S.-backed initiatives in developing countries. How did you think about that in this role with Power Africa? Well, that is a great question. So President Obama tried to bring innovation to the world of international development and involve the private sector in ways that previous administrations hadn't. So you saw GE and you saw other large-scale American companies involved in work that helped their bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. But with the added value of providing a strong societal benefit by being aligned with the president's Power Africa initiative. And so as budgets for humanitarian agencies, not only in the U.S., but around the world, decline over the long term, the need for providing international development will, of course, still be there, right? And so what started 10 years ago or so, right, of involving the private sector with working with the U.S. government and other governments in tandem for these efforts is really the way to go. And that's really the right strategy to employ, especially in this world of dealing with the ramifications from the global pandemic. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that insight. I was actually looking at the Twitter today for Power Africa, and I didn't realize it's still active, which is really exciting because to your point, we're in a global pandemic, meaning that access to clean energy is probably more critical now than ever as resources are limited. People need to be able to stay connected. Again. You've spent quite a bit of time in the public sector and then transitioned to the private world. Do you ever see yourself going back? Well, I would like to go back to working for the U.S. government in a leadership role and kind of synthesize the experiences that I've had being part of government and outside of government and in a global sort of capacity. But, you know, for the time being, you know, I am happy with what I'm doing now. And, and I can really, before I joined the private sector, I had this sense that it was only the public sector that could provide that kind of strong societal benefit. And that's just not true, right? You think about the role that the private sector is having in terms of addressing the global pandemic, right? pharmaceutical companies, logistical companies banding together to make sure that vaccines are delivered on time and in great quantity, right? Through the scale of manufacturing and through agile decision-making, 
And so if I could dream up a job, it would be some sort of hybrid role, but I don't think those exist. So <laughs> Hopefully someday soon. There's so many different types of roles being created and invented out there. But there are different ways to help. One way is through, you know, I, I'm always talking to students in high school and college. You know, there's a, especially from South Asian descent, and there is sort of a, I think, pressure on a lot of them to pursue careers that may not be aligned with the things that I've done, right? And so I get pinged all the time by young students and others looking for advice. And, you know, I've tried to make it very clear to them that a career is a journey and you should be constantly evolving. And the path that you start with out of college, don't think that that is the path that is permanent in nature. And that you should constantly be working your mind and trying to become as educated and informed about the world outside of, of where you live as possible. And let that kind of be the guiding light. It's so funny. You basically answered the next question that I was going to ask you. I was going to say that your career has been anything but traditional. And I think sometimes at a young age, it's inculcated in us that you have to choose what you want to do for the rest of your life at 18. And that's it. Right. So I'm curious, you mentioned having this guiding light, but any other advice you have for young South Asians who are interested in a variety of different spaces and what advice you would give to them? I don't want to overly generalize because that would be inaccurate, but there was a general sense of South Asians that I know and others that I'm associated with that they have a hard time coming to grips with failure. And, you know, failure and trying something new, taking a risk, those are all things that should be celebrated, especially given the fact that for a good portion of South Asians, especially those who live in the United States, they have the opportunity to take risks without necessarily the kind of negative impact that people who live in other countries might have for taking similar types of risks. So that's something that I really try to instill upon the younger generation of South Asians, which is you have a chance and you have a safety net that other people don't. So, and of course, I'm not telling them what to do. I'm just trying to to say that it's okay to try that for a year or two and crash and burn, uh, <laughs> realize you don't like it and don't beat yourself up over that. Embrace that and use that as a way to move forward. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Adi. This has been such an incredible conversation to hear about all the things that you've done and the way that you think about impact and also just how that translates to how the next generation should think about their careers as journeys. So really appreciate you taking the time and thank you so much for joining me on South Asian Trailblazers. Thank you so much, Simi. This is a podcast from Trailblazers Media. For more content on South Asian trailblazing, follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram and Facebook.